0: all right hello and welcome back to another episode of creedal catholic i'm very excited to be hosting a small little panel today with two different guests who are talking to me about the topic of feminism it's a very complicated topic but a topic on which our catholic faith has an awful lot to say so i'm really excited to welcome serena Sigalito and leah labresco Sargent, two names that you may be familiar with if you are uh, are interested in questions of catholic public life and uh, Catholic theology. So I'll read their bios here and then I'm looking forward to welcoming welcoming them on the show and having a great discussion today. So, Serena Sigalito is the editor of Public Discourse, the journal of the Weatherspoon Institute in Princeton, New Jersey. She recently completed a Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship, focusing on contemporary American women's experiences of work and motherhood. Serena earned her Bachelor's of Arts at the University of Dallas, where she studied English and music, and her Master of Arts in English at the Catholic University of America, where she earned awards for her writing and teaching. In addition to public discourse, Serena also writes for a variety of other publications, such as Newsweek, America, The American Conservative, First Things, National Review, and Verily. You can follow her work at serenacigolito.substack.com. And Leah Labresco Sargent, who is also a former Robert Novak Journalism Fellow, is a freelance writer whose work has appeared in First Things, The American Conservative, Plow, The Washington Post, and as of last week, The New York Times, so congrats on that, Leah. Uh, She's the author of Arriving at Amen, which is the story of her conversion to Catholicism and Building the Benedict Option. Leah earned her BA from Yale University in Political Science, and you can follow her new newsletter at otherfeminisms.substack.com. And I also should mention that Leah is a returning guest Two Credo Catholics. So welcome back to the show, Leah. Welcome for the first time, Serena.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Leah, let's start with you. I've got a question for you. And then Serena, I've got a question for you. And then we'll, we'll sort of merge the two and talk a lot more about femi- feminism. So Leah, your recent article in plow. And by the way, I have my copy of plow, uh, right here. I highly recommend this journal for <laughs> any of my viewers or listeners, a really good quarterly journal of Christian thought, uh, lots of great, um, Catholic ideas in there. But Leah, you had this article in there that caught my eye, and it explored the, uh, the, the idea of interdependence uh, over autonomy, right? So we live in a world that really emphasizes um, strength, right? We have this sort of Nietzschean idea of the, the ideal man who doesn't need support from anyone. Uh, we value autonomy and making your own decisions. And you draw on your experience as a mother, uh, and say that we, we really need to think about interdependence and um, the idea of being dependent on one another rather than uh, enjoying full autonomy at all moments, all the time. So can you explain to me a little bit more about that? What do you mean by interdependence? And why should we value that more than autonomy? How does that speak to us more or should it speak to us more than the idea of I control my own life and my own destiny?
1: I think the core reason we have to value interdependence more than autonomy is because interdependence is more core to who we are. And if we say autonomy is what makes us worthwhile, we'll all end up hating ourselves at various points in our life and hating ourselves pointlessly for for being human. Everyone is not autonomous at various points of their life, most obviously from the moment of conception to quite a ways into childhood. But it's not as though we then graduate to be securely autonomous for the rest of our lives, with a brief dip as we age that we prefer not to talk about or not to acknowledge. Our whole life is studded with periods of dependence, you know, even really abject, difficult dependence. Whether it's something as simple as having a stomach flu and spending an entire weekend on the couch and vomiting, you know and just utterly dependent on other people to more difficult longer term problems like chronic diseases or mental health issues that mean we need other people. Everyone needs other people. We always do all through life. All that varies is the degree or inescapability of our need.
0: Yeah, and as you said that, and actually as, as I was a, as I was reading in your article as well, I was thinking about this idea of like autonomy, right? And we often think I'm autonomous. I don't need anybody. I am totally independent. But we use that word uh, to describe conditions that are really not independent at all, right? So, like a great example that I use is uh, I can't build a car, right? Or, or you know, even I can't even work on a car. Like I know nothing about you know auto work. So I called and made an appointment for a mechanic today because we're about to do a cross country trip and I want to make sure our van's good to go. I don't know the first thing about that. I mean, I don't even change my own oil. That's how wholly dependent I am on someone else for taking care of my car, right? So. Um, even in, you know, the same thing with with growing food, right? I couldn't sustain myself on a garden in my backyard because I wouldn't know the first thing about how to do that, right? I don't hunt, so I'm totally dependent on a whole host of other people for, for every single one of my most basic needs. Um, and I...
1: But people take this as though it's embarrassing, right? Like there was a moment where Elizabeth Warren kind of in talking about our fabric of interdependence said, you know, a successful business owner doesn't build their business by themselves. You know, they depend on things we all do together Your trucks travel on roads. We all build together that you don't build by yourself. People said, wow, Elizabeth Warren is attacking small business people. It's only an attack if you think it's surprising or embarrassing that not everything in your life is the result of your own efforts. What Elizabeth Warren said should have been common sense for all of us, and it's not an attack, it's just a fact.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I'm also thinking about Hillary Clinton's um, comment several years ago. I think it was on the campaign trail, although I'm not sure about that, when she said, you know, it takes a village, right? And the, the point was like, you didn't raise your own child, right? You didn't raise that, the, the village raised that. And there's uh, there's, there's certainly an offensive, element of that that maybe we, we can get, get into and sort of the value of um, or the, uh, the importance of valuing parents' work and especially the role of women in raising children, right? But there's also a truth there, which is that, yeah, none of us are totally independent in our even in our parenting journey, right? We're reliant on other people. We're reliant on people who take care of our children. We're reliant on probably parents who at least formed us in the ways that we form our own children, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a good point. Um let's let's kind of pivot a little bit and talk about feminism which is the topic of discussion today and I want to talk about the idea of interdependence as it relates to feminism but Serena your your recent article um in Verily magazine talks about the uh the history of feminism and how we went from sort of focusing on suffrage um to uh 1960s 1970s where there really came about an unholy marriage between feminism and pro-choice advocacy or pro-abortion advocacy so can you talk to me about so just a little bit more about that history and how that came about, and then maybe some ways in which it's detrimental to feminism today. Because the thesis of your piece there is that uh, we need to we need to find a better way of articulating feminism, of sort of envisioning feminism that appreciates the value of women in child raising um, and is not focused or inextricably in, inextricably linked with um, abortion.
2: Yeah. So doing the research for this piece was really fascinating because um, you know I encountered some kind of behind the scenes history that I hadn't uh, known about before, particularly in the work of a woman named Sue Ellen Browder, who I got to interview for the piece. And she's written a couple of books, one called Sex and the Catholic Feminist and one called Subverted, How I Helped the Sexual Revolution Hijack the Women's Movement. And so her work is really interesting because, um, in contrast to a lot of of other conservative uh, critics of feminism who sort of totally write off Betty Friedan or a lot of the second wave feminists, Sue Allen Browder, I don't know, she takes a more uh, nuanced view and she actually looks at the ways that, for Dan's um, views on abortion in particular changed as a result of her relationship with someone um, who you may have heard of named Larry Later. So Larry Later and Bernard Nathanson uh, were involved in the creation of NARAL. Um, they were uh, instrumental in um Getting abortion legalized, and as a strategic move, they they realized that they needed to uh, get women's movements involved in this because politically speaking, it wouldn't be effective for men to just go out and say we want to be able to have consequence-free sex. Therefore, we need to legalize abortion. Um, and so later, actually developed a relationship with for Dan um, when they were both writing books. Uh, they had they had offices um, in the New York City Public Library while he was working on a biography of Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. And she was working on writing The Feminine Mystique, which really kicked off the second wave of the the women's movement. Um, And so at least according to Browder, uh, that relationship really shaped for Dan's view of um, abortion and solidified the idea that it should be central to the political uh, agenda of the National Organization for Women, uh, which was formed in the late 1960s. So uh, Browder tells a really kind of dramatic tale of this, this one night at um, the Chinese Room in the Mayflower Hotel in uh, Washington, DC, where there, were, there was kind of a battle within the National Organization for Women, which was split up until that point. You know, there were pro-life advocates involved um, and pro-choice uh, advocates as well. Um, and they went back and forth into the night and finally, uh, by a very slim margin, they accepted, um, the, the a provision saying that they, uh, the national organization stood for reproductive rights, um, into their now bill of rights, which then set the agenda for basically the whole women's movement going forward from that point. So that was basically um, the
0: crossing the, of the Rubicon moment for yes. the movement, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that caused a lot of fractures, you know, you have Feminist for Life being founded in 1972, shortly after that. Um, But from that point onward, I think it really became the party line that if you are a feminist, you have to be in favor of abortion. Um, And I I do think, as you're saying, that's really detrimental because that took men's bodies as normative um, and it really kind of alienated women from an essential part of who they are. Um, And I think, you know, In a lot of ways, it's connected to some of the Enlightenment thought that this is based on, you know, all of this kind of proto-feminist came out of the Enlightenment and a lot of questions of what it means to be a human being that focus a lot on the intellect as separate from the body, um, or the soul as separate from the body. And so one of the things that I think I, I don't know, I get excited about with Leah's work and um, you know, a lot of the other women who are writing now is that they're really trying to recover a sense of what it means to be a person <laughs> as well as a woman specifically, because that is you know, bo- both body and mind. Um, and so, yeah, in more concrete terms, I think that we could have gotten a lot of um, you know, different legislation in place that would support mothers, um, you know, not pretending that it's a woman's problem Uh, if she gets pregnant, uh, but saying that, you know, actually, we are all dependent on one another, Uh, that human being inside of her is dependent on her, and she needs support. And we have a duty to provide that support for her. Um, So I think without having that framework, there's just been a lot of trickle down effects um, that have been really detrimental to women and to, to men as well.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate all of that. I mean, one one person that we all know, uh, Erica Bakiaki, is coming on the show soon to talk about the, the Romney plan, which is the topic of uh, Leah's New York Times op-ed that I will link in the show notes. And I know, Serena, you've written about that uh, to some extent as well. And I really appreciate Erica's work. Um, and actually, in the interview that you did with, with Erica last October, I think it was, Serena, she talked about a lot of the ideas that you were just explaining, right? Sort of these, these ideas of um, exploring what it means to be a woman uh recognizing that uh you know there's the the, there there are not gendered souls um but that that gender sex sexual identity is a key part of the body uh soul union right the embodiment of our souls and the key insight of good feminist thought i think um or at least the sort of maybe not so much the key insight but the sort of key tenet the key foundational point is that uh, men and women are fundamentally different right so uh, we don't value women because women are the same as men. We value women because women are women, right? And that that I think has to underpin everything. And I really appreciate the work that both of you and people like Erica are doing to help rem- remind people of that and recognize that women are different than men and we need to value them precisely because they are different, right? Not in spite of their differences, but because they are different. Um, so, So I think that's really good. But you also mentioned first wave, second wave feminism. So if we can back up a little bit, and this is a question for both of you, uh, help educate me a little bit on this, because I thought that, or I think that uh, first wave feminism is sort of the the universal suffrage movement, right? So we think, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, right? These, these um, path-breaking, trailblazing women who fought for all women to have the right to vote. Second wave feminism, I think, comes about mostly in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And that, I think, is what you were just describing to us, Serena. And then third wave feminism is sort of this, um, some have, I think, called it neo-feminism, but that is maybe what I was just describing, recognizing that women and men are fundamentally different, but maybe there are, maybe there are more waves. Maybe I have the waves different. So, so talk to me more about these. I, I think they get disputed yeah, a bit, sure. you know, in terms of everyone wanting to
1: claim mm-hmm. uh, whatever the third wave okay. is okay. or final you know, wave. Uh, alleging a fourth wave in order to say, you know, the next and therefore most correct one is the one I'm affiliated okay. with. Um, I joked about calling my sub stack undertow feminism yes. or last, wave, last feminism, wave feminism, all of which were <laughs> terrible titles. right? Um, I think one of the, you know, uh, one of the points of conflict between second and third wave feminism is, you know, are we rejecting false choices, but fundamentally, you know, saying there is, are some things that are true about being a woman that we're trying to center and make space for? Or are we not just rejecting false choices imposed on us by a misogynistic society? We're saying there can't be constraints on choice. Okay. Like women are most free whenever they can choose anything. Right. Um, And then you get that kind of tension between, you know, the second wave opposition to pornography as, you know, hostile and degrading to women versus a third wave embrace of Uh, it. Because if a woman chooses to make it or as long as a woman's behind the camera, if a woman's choosing it, it must be a good idea. That's empowering. Yeah. Or, you know, I think one person said, you know, the neoliberal view of feminism is, you know, at least 50 percent of our drone pilots are dropping bombs as women.
2: Yeah. I think there's also in third I mean, there's such a splintering involved in third wave feminism because I think another big part of the picture here that got introduced in recent decades is the idea of intersectionality um, and a lot of the roots in kind of Marxist cultural theory um, and sort of looking at at things through the lens of power and oppression um, and kind of overlapping um, systems of privilege or of subjugation, you know, and uh, kind of understanding, you know, in some ways, this is good, right? Like, because I do think early feminism had some blind spots, especially in regards to race, um, as well as kind of socioeconomic issues and different things. Um, But, you know, coming from a Catholic perspective, you do have to be kind of wary, because again, you have maybe a slightly different, but also a wrong vision of the human person that is underlying that whole system so you know i hope that our our version becomes you know the next wave (laughs) but i yeah i'm not sure i think that a lot of um well there's a mishmash of different things that are still out there now but that's that's kind of one current that i do think is very influential
0: so then correct me if i'm wrong i
2: think a big question I, i just think a big
1: underlying question for lots of these waves is are we seeking freedom to be a woman or freedom from being a woman Oh yeah which I think goes back to Serena's point about abortion as you know, the price of entry into our society. You know, the, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said she would have preferred to see uh, you know, Roe grounded in equal protection rather than privacy. And because she saw it, you know, exactly as you're talking about it, Serena, that if the world is all made for men, women have to be able to reproduce in the way men do, to be free from the way a woman's cycle and you know, whole system of fertility works in order to exist in that world. And I don't I reject that because you know, for me, the fundamental question is, I agree basically with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, our whole society, our economy is hostile mm-hmm. to women, hostile to children, hostile to the way women's um, reproductive systems work. As so the question is, how do we have to reform society so that women can fit in it, not how do we reform women so that they can fit our misogynistic society?
0: That's a great point. I mean, and and I'm going to jump ahead. This was the last question I wanted to ask for you guys, but I think it dovetails really well with what you just said, Leah. So uh, I like your distinction about are we trying to help women be free from being being women or are we trying to help them be free to be women? Uh, And so I think that that does lead to the question, right? Like if feminism has good things to say, important things to say about culture, and I, I certainly believe that it does. We, you know, it's either saying we need to help change the society to, um, or we need to help change women or help women to be more like men to thrive and be equal in this male-dominated society, or we need to change society to help be more accommodating uh, and appreciative of women being women, right? So I think that the question is what what does that pro pro woman policy need to look like? And one of the things that I've been talking to a lot of friends about and Um, writing a little bit about lately is the Romney plan, right? This idea, uh, this legislative proposal that would give um, something like universal basic income to parents of children, especially young children, um, to help them have the basic monetary support they need to buy diapers and food and basic baby supplies, car seats, which are insanely expensive, right? Hence the whole car seat as contraception idea. Um, and so so I, what does it what does pro family policy look like? I mean, the Romney plan, I think, is probably a good start. And, and given what you both have written about it, I think you agree. Uh, right. But what is what does pro woman policy look like? And I would say, I mean, pro pro woman policy um, also has to be pro family policy. And, and, and um, I, 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 you guys can quibble with that and maybe you have a different take. But um, I'll throw that back to you first, Serena. What do you think about pro woman policy? What does that need to look like?
2: Yeah, I think you're exactly right that pro woman policy um, needs to also be pro-family policy, because I think that the core thing that, uh, you know, when we talk about feminism rejecting the female body, primarily the thing we're talking about is the rejection of motherhood. Um, And and that centers around an experience of dependency, both on the part, you know, you become uh, physically vulnerable and weakened, you know, in the because of the reality of childbirth in particular in the immediate postpartum period, but also you are, um, whether you like it or not, responsible for another human being who is utterly dependent upon you. Um, and so I think when we're thinking about shaping our public policy, we have to have that kind of at the center. Um, you know. And I think motherhood is the most obvious example, and women are most uh, smacked in the face with the you know this aspect of humanity, but it's also true for men. You know, I think maybe it's easier for men to ignore this aspect of of what it means to be human, but it actually hurts them if they do too. Um, so what I really like about things like the Romney plan, or there's a great proposal from Lyman Stone, um, and I think it's Rachel Anderson uh, from the Center for Public Justice, uh, laid out at the Institute for Family Studies um, for a, a maternity leave package. That um, really prioritizes child well-being. Um, you know, I think it's 18 weeks. But one thing that I really love about it is that it has the the freedom and the choice to uh, split up that leave however you want between the parents. Um, and really, just saying, in this in this immediate postpartum period, in this fourth trimester, um, the the physical presence of the mother in particular, but the father too, is really really important. Um, and so, just enabling that and saying, you know, that's something that is good for our society as a whole for us to value. Um, And it changes people in ways that then, you know, affect their the the gifts that they bring to the job and all of these different things. Um, So saying sure, it's a short term hit, but it's worth, it's not only right and just, but it also I think has uh, positive benefits for society um, to subsidize these things.
1: I think Serena is absolutely right. And I think one of the key points you're making there is just, you know, not only is pro-woman, pro-family, it is pro-men mm-hmm. because men also are interdependent, you know, they need these things too, they can just pretend they don't for longer. And to an extent, society is built a little more around their experience, so some of these pain points don't pinch them the way they do us. I take an example, uh, you know, leave for new parents, because you know, the way we do this in our country is monstrous. You know, a baby needs his or her mother, still needs her right after birth. You know, it's not as though once a baby is born, either the baby or the mom is ready to be totally autonomous again. There's a reason people talk about the fourth trimester where the baby is still learning, growing, and wants to be near their parents. You know, and you you look at the way our culture treats family leave, with the ideal being, well, how do we get you away from the baby and back to work as fast as possible? Are there other supports you need to go back to work as fast as possible? At the high end socioeconomic we talk about this as support. At the low end, we just talk about this as laziness, which is disgusting. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you know, the mother has just given birth and physically needs to recover. You know, in my case, I had a C-section. There is no way I couldn't go up and down the stairs easily for a week. The idea that our society is kind of built around no expectation of recovery time is crazy. But you look at the entire way we did this, and you see that we have a society that almost thinks, "Wow, wouldn't it be great if we could just deliver the baby earlier? You know, at 37 weeks, and then the mom could be back to work that much faster. Because the problem is the baby's inside, you know. But once they're out, we can just kind of treat these two people as separate individuals or systems. That's all nuts. You know, babies need their dads too, not quite as obviously, and not quite as acutely but we live in a society that brutalizes women pressuring them to go back to work you know when they're physically recovering from surgery or a very difficult physical experience and then neglects both them and their babies emotionally and the men kind of come in more on that second part where of course you want to be with your baby and of course your baby deserves to be with you though so, you know a humane pro family policy includes a lot longer paid time with your children I think that probably is money that comes straight from the government, not from your employer, because it creates difficult incentives for employers who feel, you know, like many tech companies do. Well, I'd, I'd rather employ people who don't feel they have responsibilities to someone else. I don't want to employ young parents. I don't want to be on the hook for this. It's a societal responsibility more than just an employer responsibility.
0: No, well said. And uh, I will say my uh, my camera's giving me a low battery warning. So if my camera shuts off, that's that's why. Um, but. No, I really like what you said, Leah, and I like how you, you, set, you specified that the babies need their dads too. And I would say, you know, along with the idea of interdependence, this isn't a one way street, right? It's not just the babies who need the parents, but I think the parents need the babies. And I know so many people um, who are men in the workplace who think that like their job, their primary role in life is to be in the workplace and have a successful thriving career and earn tons of money. And so my company has a very, very generous parental leave program for moms and dads. It's wonderful. Um, the baseline expectation for most moms is that they're gonna take everything. The baseline expectation for most dads is like, ah, you might take uh, you know, half of it, you might take a quarter of it, you'll be back to work when you need to be back to work, right, uh, I'm taking all of it because I, because I want my, I wanna spend time with my dads, with, with, my, with my kids, right, I wanna help my wife who's in this, you know, helping um, breastfeeding our our newest and in this fourth trimester that I think you mentioned, Serena, right, the immediate postpartum period, there's a lot of chaos and upheaval, as you both know, right? So, um, but there's there's this idea, I think, that men really don't need to be in the home that's wrong. But we also need to remember that like it really, it really shapes you to take care of a little one, to be the primary caregiver or one of the I mean, I don't like the primary secondary caregiver to talk about parents. I like thinking of both parents as primary caregivers. Um, uh, despite the fact that their roles are are often very different. But you know, just being a caregiver to your, your kid causes immense changes in how you think about the world, how you approach life, how you will think about your career, the decisions that you will make in your career. And so we need our kids just as much as they need us in that respect, right? Because they change everything about the way we see the world and the, the ways that we make decisions that affect our family down the road.
1: And it's not just parents who need that. That's the other thing, you know, in all these moments, wherever we see a culture that's hostile to parents, we see one that's hostile to people who are taking care of elderly parents, people who have a friend they worry about, you know, who struggles with mental illness. We see a culture that's hostile to anyone who is willing to make a commitment to someone else. and part of what we get as a blessing for making space for parents and space for kids is that hopefully we wind up with a more humane economy that takes seriously, you know, again, just look at the fact that many people don't have any paid sick leave at all, which really kind of fails to tell the truth about who we are. People get sick, they can't work when they're sick. They shouldn't have to face the choice between you know, dragging themselves to work and putting them through the appearance of a day's work to get paid versus being at home and getting better. They shouldn't face the choice between, well, my kid is really sick, but I can't afford to not be at work. Or even my good friend, you know, who is single, is really sick and has stomach flu and is depending on someone to take care of them. And that someone is me, I'm their friend and I love them. And that is actually more important than my job on a day-to-day basis when, you know, when it's a important situation. And the sense that in people, you know, to, To be equal, to be full human beings, are just as accessible to work as possible is crazy.
2: Yeah, and I think it relates to to this idea of workism um, and the centering of your identity on what you're able to achieve or what you're able to create um, uh, or produce. And kind of, it, you know, it is a materialistic and kind of capitalistic mindset. Um, and again, a wrong understanding of the human person, because one of the things that babies do is they remind us that they are good just because they are, you know? And that's true of us too. And of our sick friend who can't work or, or you know, the elderly person in the nursing home, you know, and so it teaches us something about ourselves. And I think it also trains us to look at other people in that way, you know, um, it, In one of my interviews for uh, my Novak project, I talked to Elizabeth Corey, who is a Baylor professor who had a really interesting piece in First Things several years ago um, about work and motherhood. But one of the things she she told me is that she has found uh, that being a mother has really changed how she does her job um, and particularly in the administrative side um, because you start to kind of see everyone you're interacting with as someone's child, you know, um, this makes me think too, of that Flannery O'Connor story. A good man is hard to find. If you remember at the end, right? She, you know, the grandmother is, you know, looking at the, you know, it involves, uh, if you haven't read the story, um, <laughs> it's a good, a crazy story, uh, yeah, but I'm
0: a huge Flannery O'Connor fan. Okay. Of,
2: yeah. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, yeah, a highway robbery basically that happens. But, um, even in this kind of terrible, the misfit. This this guy who is, perpetrating robbery and murder. You know, um, this grandmother is able to say, you know, my baby, you're my baby. Like to see the, the humanity of this person, um, and I do think that parenthood really encourages you to to see others in that way, and to see yourself in that. Yeah, way. it goes back to yeah. that.
1: Exactly. It goes back to that fundamental question of when we look at other people, do we see their moments of weakness as deficiencies in them? that we're you know at best overlooking. You know, you're usually fully autonomous. I'll grant that you're a person right now whether you happen to be sick or happen to be out of work or happen to be poor. Or do we look at people and see them as a person, you know, and that their dependence is part of who they are and part of what connects us to them. And I agree with you, Serena, a baby's a big tutorial in that. Because we can accept things about a baby. We have trouble accepting about ourselves or accepting about other people including not just about our physical weakness but about our moral weakness there's a lot of times i look at my baby you know and i see her you know just face planting into the couch repeatedly and on (laughs) purpose like what are you doing why would you do that you know and i think or you know, dropping something where she can't get to it and then getting upset. And I think this is how God looks at me a lot of the time. You know, For things that are way more consequential than my board book is now stuck behind the couch, I constantly do things that frustrate the ends for which I'm made. Uh, and then I look at God and go, this is terrible and it's probably your fault, right? Uh, and when we see that in a child, luckily it's adorable, but the hope is that we can see that in ourselves and then really want to grow up Morally, and to recognize we do that by turning to God and by not being ashamed of our own dependence and weakness before him.
0: That's so well said. And I mean, I was uh, not I'm sorry that my camera went out, guys. I I was supposed to get a a wire that was going to allow me to hook the camera up and charge it while we were doing this and Amazon was supposed to deliver it yesterday and they, they failed me on the delivery window. So it was, it's a delayed package, so my apologies. But I was nodding along regardless, uh, Leah, while you, were, while you were saying, you know, you're, you watch your child do this. And uh, in my case, you know, especially with older kids too, you, you watch them disobey the rules repeatedly, right? And you're like, we've talked about this. I have told you, you can't do this. Uh, and then you realize, you know, this is exactly my relationship with God a lot of times, right, like I know what I'm supposed to do and I, I don't do it, right? It's it's, it's it's that which I will to do I don't do um, and so yeah, I think it does help you in your own moral education as a parent to see those things and that's doubly it's it's doubly true um, when you're a parent who spends time with your kids because you just have more time with them to to see that and recognize that um, you know my, my uh, girls are reading through the uh, Little House on the Prairie series right now and yeah. And my wife and I were talking about this the other day. You know, I, I often just find myself getting frustrated with career stuff in general, right? My own career stuff because I, I, you know, I'm not fulfilled in my work, et cetera. And our culture tells us that our primary means of self-fulfillment is through our work, right? That's 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 kind of the prevailing cultural lie uh, with respect to to um to adult life, I think. And uh, it's easy to get wrapped up in that, uh, to fall for the lie even if just temporarily and think like, I'm not satisfied in my life because my job is really boring, right? Or because my job doesn't have impact or whatever the case, or I'm not paid enough, whatever the case is. Um, but you know, you look at uh, the, the life on the prairie, right? That's a family just doing family things, right? And when, they're, when their dad is working, he is not working to have a successful thriving career where people recognize the name of Pa Ingalls. Uh, he's working to provide for his family so that he can literally put food on the table. Right. Uh, And do that. And so it's it's in many respects beautiful just to see their family dynamic working. And I find myself thinking, man, what if more of our families today just focus on their family life and really made that the center of their existence here? And this is obviously why, you know, to wrap in Catholic teaching on this, this is why we see uh, the family referred to as the domestic church, because it is supposed to be the the center of apostolic life. I mean, every Catholic family is a tiny little apostolate unto itself. Um, And so to make that the center of our life is a really important and good and noble thing. It shouldn't be our career where we just earn a salary.
2: Yeah. And I think that has implications for public policy too, you know, Mm. and drawing from Catholic social teaching, we have this, this dual emphasis on solidarity and subsidiarity, you know? Um, And so I think really good public policy should be encouraging, encouraging the the role of the parents. um, And the importance of that domestic church, even if it's, you know, not put in those terms, uh, that's functionally what it's able to do it.
1: And I think we make a big mistake in that, you know, work is a mode when we think our waged work is the only contribution we make to the world. You know, at the extreme end as Catholics, we always have the example of cloistered nuns who barely interact at all with the world except through their prayers and are doing tremendous work within it. Now in our own lives, There may be kind of a less intense distinction between normal waged work and work you do in your community as a volunteer, you know, babysitting someone else's kids, bringing food to someone who's sick. But all of that's important work too, and it's important that it is distinct from waged work. I don't think the solution is we give everyone kind of a stipend specifically for being kind to other people. But when I think about what a living wage entails, part of what it entails is enough abundance in time and flexibility that you can give to others. It's not just, well, by working 60 hour weeks, each of you, you can just barely manage to cover your home payments because then there isn't anything left to spill over and there isn't room for that additional work you do that's valuable to others that binds us all together that is never going to be part of a market uh, wage or a market economy
0: yeah good point i will say however that i i would sign up for receiving a stipend just to be just for being nice people I think that'd be, <laughs> sign me up for that um no but I, you're right leah and uh, you know, one of the criticisms of the Romney plan that I've seen that to me doesn't hold much weight is, you know, we can't have a plan like this because this would be a disincentive to work as if, as if a a mother or father is going to be like, you know what? The government's giving us $500 a month for our two kids. We don't need to work. I'm not, I'm not going to get a job for that. We'll be fine. I mean, this like whoever, whoever thinks that has not tried to raise a child because it's expensive to raise a kid. And I just think, you know, for, for someone like me who is well compensated and uh, you know at my job and Sally and I have never looked at each other and said how are we gonna afford diapers this month, right? That's not a concern for me, and I'm really grateful for that But I think about the single mom who is working a minimum wage job She is having that conversation with herself, right? I don't know how I'm gonna afford diapers I don't know how I'm gonna feed formula, which you know I, at my uh, my local Walmart I was there the other day and I noticed that all their baby formula is behind glass under lock and key and I was just like what what stage have we arrived at in our society where our grocery stores have to put baby formula behind lock and key because they're so afraid that a really desperate mom might steal some formula to feed her baby. And I mean, I, I don't have a good answer for that, but it, it just struck me and I was like, this is, this is really, really sad. So, um, you know, just a, an anecdote to explain why I'm behind the Romney plan, right? Because, because we need to help, we need to have pro-woman, pro-family policy who do this and to, to enable women to be women.
1: Yeah. And I think that question of, you know, where are the incentives? Are we worried about the incentives? Yeah, I've got two objections to it. You've kind of raised the the most basic practical one, which is just, it's not so much money that people can right. live cheaply on just, you know, the, the stipend, right. which is true, but I wouldn't be bothered if it were more money. You know, that wouldn't shift my calculus here. Uh, part of my objection is just the idea that, well, if parents stay home with their kids, they're not working. They're obviously working. They're doing work that isn't waged. Um, and this idea that it only counts when it's paid for is what I talked about in the op-ed. It's the idea that if Serena and I swapped our kids every day and paid each other the same money, right? You know, I hand her, let's say a $50 bill and then she hands it back to me. Now that's an economy and right, now our work right. is worthwhile as long as it's not our own kids, it's crazy. So there's that, that we're narrowing the sense of what youthful work is to what, you know, exists in the market and not the full range of work. And then there's just the fact that a lot of people are both time and money poor and it is security that lets us take productive useful risks the risk of being home for a while with a kid who needs you the risk to start a business often depends on enough of a cushion that you can take a good chance when you see one the risk to skip some kind of extra work you would have picked up to take care of someone in your neighborhood a bit of cushion allows us to take bigger risks for each other. And that is honestly part of both how our social economy and our money economy grows.
2: Yeah. And one kind of more nitty gritty point that I do like about the Romney plan is just how simple it is. Um, Because I think as you're saying, you know, that you're not only money poor, you're time poor and you're emotional energy poor. You know, like when you're you you can be so exhausted, um, you know, even I'm thinking, you know, there's there's one acquaintance of mine who has eight kids and, you know, was laid off at the beginning of the pandemic and all these things, and it's eligible for uh, some government benefits, but it's just so many hoops to jump through and there's, you know, problems with one bureaucratic institution that's not giving her the paperwork she needs to submit to this other place to do this, you know, and to get some of the benefits that we do have in place now is so complicated. There are so many barriers that, you know, it's just, Sometimes it means not realistic if you're a single mom trying to figure out how to pay for the the diapers and the formula to have the emotional energy to get through that whole process as well as the time is just I don't I you know it's cruel it's not actually responding to their needs um so you know that's another point that I really like about this and also you know on the work disincentives idea. Um, one thing that is really good in, in both the marriage front and the work front in, in the structure of this plan is that it doesn't phase out until very high income levels. So it's not like some of the older models of, you know, welfare and assistance for single mothers that would, um, you know, take away money as you started to uh, earn money and kind of, again, disincentivize work because you're you're working more and getting less money. <laughs> you know, and same for um, getting married, that that can bump you up over income thresholds that take away your benefits.
1: And those penalties are very much based on this kind of anxiety about deservingness. You know, Those job penalties come in because we're like, well, we want to make sure our biggest priority is not to give people $1 more than they might need. The moment we're over basic subsistence, the moment they have another source of support, we've got to pull up fast because it would be terrible if someone who was poor got slightly more money than they needed. Uh, And I think that anxiety is bad, you know, that we don't need to be so fearful in how we give to people who are in need. We don't even need to be so fearful about whether they're deserving. You know, Christians overall, it's different than what our government does, but Christians overall should sometimes get played for suckers. Because if you aren't, you're being too restrictive in how you evaluate the need of someone you meet. And in our welfare policy every single bar we put to prove eligibility or prove deservingness doesn't just filter out people we might think of as undeserving or scam artists it filters out whoever is most needy who can least afford to get a babysitter to go to the library to use the Wi Fi to fill out the form, the person who's having trouble with language, the person who doesn't have somewhere to put as a permanent address. So every bar filters out both, you know, maybe the people who aren't willing to go through the hurdle, but there will always be more people who are in abject need who can't get over the hurdle to prove it, than there are people being filtered out to see if they're scammers.
0: Well, guys, there's so much more we could say, uh, and I wish we had the time to do it. Maybe if you if you guys would want to come back on the talk more, I'd love to have you. Uh, you are two of the people who I think are doing some of the most thoughtful work on these topics today. So thank you both for your work. Uh, in closing, I want to say thank you, and I want to also give you guys a chance to to plug your work for 30 seconds or so. And I know self promotion can be awkward, but you both are doing Substack newsletters now. Where else are people writing these days, right? Um, so Serena, tell us about uh, com. and then Leah, tell us about other feminisms.
2: Sure. So mine is a little fledgling sub stack, I just launched it. Um, it's called the sandpiper. Um, and it's going to be a just monthly updates uh, of primarily sending out um, links to my work, I'll send out this podcast, uh, but also some other, um, you know, interesting uh, things that I'm reading or uh, conversations that are happening around the web. Um, so you can go there and follow my work. Um, I'd also encourage you to check out the public discourse. Um, We're doing a really interesting series right now on rebuilding institutions that I think is, is also related to some of these questions for how do we actually build, um, a more just society that's in line in many ways with Catholic social thought. Um, so I think both of those places, I'd love to have your listeners check out my work.
0: Great. Thanks. And I will include links to, um, to all of these, by the way, in the show notes. So, all right, Leah, how about other feminisms?
1: So Other Feminisms is a substack community I run where every Monday I post a kind of prompt for discussion, which might be a link to someone else's work, a little essay of my own about how we make space for women to exist as women, rather than making us fit a world that is hostile to us. So I post that discussion prompt on Monday, and then the following Thursday, I run a highlights from everyone's discussion. I love it. Uh, I love to hear everyone else's different perspectives. I love to get pointed to different thinkers or articles or ideas that I haven't encountered before. And I just like having a place that's kind of a breath of fresh air to say, you know, we, we deserve more as women than being defective men or help at being less defective men Uh, so i've really been enjoying that and you can find me at otherfeminisms.substack.com
0: great thank you so much to both of you and uh, have a great day to my listeners um, hopefully you enjoyed this conversation as i mentioned all those links are in the show notes if you want to follow the work of leah or serena you can find uh, all the links they mentioned and some of their more recent work too that we've discussed or are related to things we've discussed as well so check that out in the show notes and until next time god
2: bless you